on earth as it is in heaven. This is our series that we're in right now. This is our week three, if I have my weeks right. The summer has been scrambled not only in the foyer but in my brain, um, and here we are. This week we're talking about being communal. What does it mean to be communal? What does it mean um, as we apply community to this idea of on earth as it is in heaven? What did Jesus mean by that? And, and what does that mean for us as we strive to live it together, not uh, separate and individual? What we've said every week in, in our introduction is that as Western people, we learn a certain way. We, our, our society is organized to learn, 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 and then do. So we're in a university community, and we get our degree, and then we get our advanced degrees, and eventually, once we finish with school, then we feel qualified, and we get to practice what we've learned. And in Eastern society, that just wasn't the case. You took on an apprentice, and as a, as a young boy, if you were uh, the son of a carpenter, per se, um, you would be introduced into carpentry, and you'd be taught to do, 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 so as to learn. And uh, often in Scripture, when we see the command, the command is not learn how to do it so that you can do it later. The command is to begin doing it now so you can learn what you're doing. And so that's where we're sitting with this. We've used the same illustration to start every week, which is if you want to teach a child to cook, you don't hand them a cookbook and say, take this to your bed and learn it. You invite them in the kitchen. You let them get their hands in the dough. You let them smell the spices to taste the... Yeah, who, who's, whose parent let them lick the bowl or lick the spoon after you made brownies or cake? Or, that is a rite of passage. Do you know why children love brownies? It isn't for the brownies. It isn't for the cake. It's so you can lick the spoon before it goes into the oven. Okay. That's how you teach someone to love it is you let them taste it with you. And that's where we are. So as we think about that, we ask the question, what does it mean to live as an authentic and radical community in this modern age? We give uh, some credit where credit is due. Tim Keller had a sermon in 2001 that illuminated a lot of the, the passage we're going to look at for me. And so I just want to say that up front because um, I'm going to be stealing a whole lot of good stuff from him. When I was thinking about this whole sermon and community and what that really looked like in our culture, uh, it occurred to me that we're having the perfect season to talk about this, that we've had this remodeling project, this whole renovation where walls are getting knocked down, and for weeks at a time, there were wires dangling from the ceiling, and it was like, it was hazardous. There's construction tools everywhere, and, and it's dusty, and it's messy, and stuff's getting moved, and stuff's getting broken, and this is what we've kind of been living in. And so I love it now that it's almost finished. It looks wonderful. I'm glad we did it. It's, it's great. It's going to be so much more functional, all that. But if I can confess that I kind of already missed the fact that it was under construction. There was something beautiful about the unfinishedness of it all. It, it, in, in the construction zone, it's the perfect illustration, the perfect metaphor for what it means to live in Christian community. It's, it's this constant remodeling. It's this constant renovation. It's messy, and it's dusty, and at times dangerous, and yet it's good because you're working towards something that's beautiful. As a modern Western American people, we don't typically like to show things until they're ready. We don't like to let people in on the mess of life. We like to show them the finished product when it's done and it's good. And in community, we are forced to live in the mess together. We're forced to live in the brokenness together. We're forced to live in the dust together and in the wires hanging down and the HVAC systems all haywire. And we're forced to live in that. And that's a great thing for our souls, but it's also exactly how we were designed. Christianity is actually wires hanging out unfinished progress every day towards beauty. First Peter chapter 2. The Bible says this. As you come to him, God... A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house 
to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, this is Isaiah 28 that's being quoted. He says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So to honor, the honor is for you who believe. For those who do not believe, now he's going to quote Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And, Isaiah 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they are because they disobey the world, and they were destined, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race. This is going to sound familiar to some people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So we're going to focus on verse 4, which was on the first slide. The verse 4 that has this, this idea of living stones. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. Followers of Christ, we are living stones. This is interesting because every culture and religion has sacred places. Every culture, every religion has sacred places. Religions, think of them. There's temples and there's synagogues and there's churches. There's buildings. They have steeples or they have minarets. They have ways of uh, of establishing who they are and what they believe. Every Religion has a physical presence that announces something about itself. Same thing is true for cities. Uh, Tim Keller once said that every city, you can almost always tell what matters to a city when you look at their tallest building. And I thought, that can't be real. So I started applying it. I was like, you know, that's real. I was living in San Antonio when I first heard that. San Antonio's tallest building is a 700-foot-tall observation tower. It's basically a worthless spindle with a rotating restaurant on top and an observation deck. Why do they have that? Well, it was built for a tourist event, and now it's a tourist trap. In San Antonio, if you know anything about it, well, it's a military town, and it's a biotech town, and it's all these other, it's, it's ultimately a tourist town. They have the Final Four there, and the Riverwalk, and the Alamo, and it's, people just come from, everyone comes to San Antonio because it's a nice place to spend a week. It's a tourist town, so the tallest building is a tourist building. New York City, the Freedom Tower, World Trade Center, 1,776 feet to the tip of the spire. What is that a monument to? to commerce. And that 1776, that freedom of free markets. So down, down in the lower end of the island, it, it's near Wall Street. It's near commerce and money and finance. And it's this, this pinnacle rising off the tip of this rock that says, this is what we're about. Bring it closer to home when you go to Toledo. What's the tallest building in Toledo? You can see it. One Seagate Center, the blue glass building says Fifth Third Bank on it, right? Originally built as the home of Owens, Illinois, one of the largest glass manufacturing companies in the world. So Toledo, the glass city, has a glass tower built by a glass company as its tallest building. Bring it closer to home, Bowling Green. I'm glad you laughed at that. If I put one of those, uh, you know, the little thing with the chicken on it that goes in the wind, what is that thing? A... weather vane? If I put a weather vane on top of my house, I get the new record. Um, the, the, the county courthouse is the tallest building in the city. Because it means something to be the county seat, especially when you're vying in the late 1800s with these other, this Perrysburg, forget them, we're, we're bigger. We may not be anymore, but we got the county seat, that matters. And the next 12 tallest buildings are all on this little campus of Bowling Green State University, which sort of happens to run the town. 
I didn't take a tape measure. I'm going to let Coach Jinx do that. But he needs to measure the light poles at, at the Doit and see if they're actually taller than the courthouse. And I'll amend. I'll go back and re-record this whole thing and we'll put it out. But one way or another, when you look at even this town, you see the tallest thing represents. It's just we as people put our identities into buildings. We put our identities into structures. We put our ide- identities into brick and mortar. And that shows something about ourselves. Peter has this radical idea as he's writing. He says, there is no more building. There is no more temple. He says, we are the temple. We are the housing of God going forward. We are the representation of his beauty and his grace and his mercy. We are that going forward. That those of us indwelt with the presence of the Holy Spirit were no longer funneling into temples and into buildings and into synagogues and into, we, we are the temple and we are the church wherever we go. There's an intensity in that. As followers of Christ, we should feel the, the blessed burden of that to go, we are, we've been made the new representation. It doesn't matter how tall the steeple is in the town square, it matters, are we living out the values that that represents? Every culture senses this gap. Every culture creates a way to lay brick upon brick. So physically, we build structures to our gods, whatever those gods are. And spiritually, we engage in works to earn their favor. We do these things to reach enlightenment, to reach some nirvana, to reach whatever the God is we're chasing. Christianity says it isn't about laying brick upon brick. It isn't about laying work upon work. It's about laying Christian upon Christian. This is what community looks like, is you and I locked in together brick by brick, person by person, joined together. To function as designed, we are built into each other. And in Christianity, community is the new temple. And community is mobile. So the scripture says we're a holy nation, a holy nation, a distinct ethnicity of faith. What that literally means is we're a set-apart ethnicity. Holy nation, set-apart ethnicity. So your first filter as you walk through the world, your first identifier is not man, woman, white, black, is none of those things. Your first filter is actually Christian. That's your new ethnic identifier according to the scripture. So specifically, what is this distinct ethnicity that we share if that's who we are? A royal priesthood, it says. We're a royal priesthood. That is our new ethnicity. And this is, this is a, a strange point in the scripture because we go, well, that sounds kind of fun. Royal priesthood. I like that. Jesus creates these waves, these revolutionary waves as he walks through the world. And as Peter picks up the torch and begins to teach others about him, what, what he's explaining is, is that Jesus created this culture, a culture of service in a world built on power. And so all the reasons you ever heard that Jesus was crucified, there's a lot of them. There's political reasons, there's religious reasons, there's power reasons. When he turns over tables in the temple, it's because he's finding scales that are, that are improperly weighted to cheat the people. In archaeological digs, they find these scales that are, that are off 10, 20, 30 percent cheated so that when you went to buy grain in the temple courts, which is a normal place to go buy grain, the tables got tipped over not because they're selling grain, but because they're cheating God's people. Jesus said, we're not doing this anymore. It's not about power anymore. We exist to serve. We're a royal priesthood. It's an oxymoronic phrase because priests, priests exist to serve. That's what the priest is here to do. He's to serve the people. But royal, the king exists to be served. The king has servants who do everything for him. 
And so to be a royal priesthood is to naturally put a paradox into play and say, you are a people who've been called sons and daughters of the Most High King, who don't exist to be served, but to serve others. This is the countercultural teachings of Christ becoming real, that he is building the upside-down kingdom with inside-out people. He's building a royal priesthood, which makes no sense until you live it, and you feel it, and you go, yeah, this is right. This is hard work, though. It requires community to actually work this out with each other. We are Americans. We're in the, the mode of content acquisition. This is what we do best. Content acquisition. We want to know more. We want to learn more. We want to read more. Is that on Netflix? I'll watch that. I'll take more. Just give me more input. Give me more content. And this is saying it's not about content. It's about community. That this has to be lived out. It can't be brought in. And so we, you and I, are creating an alternate city. We're creating an alternate city within this new identity and within the city we currently live in. We are here to create an alternate city, to create the city of God in the city of Bowling Green. So that as Bowling Green continues on, we create an ever-growing sense of something radical is happening here. And there are these people who claim this thing, but they're not like the other people who claim that thing. They're not after power. They're not after money. They're not after prestige. They don't care who sees it. They're radically serving the poor. They're radically serving the disenfranchised. They're dispensing justice on the street corners. They're people who go into other people's homes, into the hospitals, and they love radically. And we don't get it because none of it fits the proper metrics of our society. That's what we're building. We are becoming the city of God and the city of Bowling Green, and that is where the gospel goes out strongest. Within that, we have our identity. There are two pieces to our identity seen in this passage. The first piece is God, through Peter, calls us chosen people. Chosen people, which is super important. Your identity is not earned. You're chosen. And however you have to work that out theologically, people have been trying for a couple thousand years, there's still some debate. What's clear is the scripture says you are a chosen people. That God, through his infinite mercy and grace, chose you. That before you existed, before you breathed your first breath, before you sinned your first sin, that Jesus had already come and died on the cross for you. So it wasn't up to you to do enough to get him to do that for you, to be good enough, to be right enough, to get all the arguments correct. It wasn't about any of that. It was about this was done for you, knowing you were going to need it. You're chosen. You can't earn my grace. Some people don't like this. People outside the church really don't like this. They say, this isn't, this isn't fair. I, I reject Christianity because of grace, which is weird when you're inside the Christian bubble. You're like, no, this is the get out of jail free card. You want this. And they go, no, 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 this is, this is, this is a messed up system. This isn't fair. You're telling me that, that Gandhi can't be chosen? He's not chosen because he, wasn't, he didn't follow your Jesus, so he doesn't get in? He did all this great stuff. To which we say, yeah because it wasn't about what you ever did. Because you, be, you don't become excluded because you did too many wrong things, and you don't get included because you did too many right things. You get included because of the grace of Jesus. Now, I don't know where Gandhi is. I don't know what his relationship with Jesus was like. So I'm not here to tell you that he's in or out, he's left or right, I don't know. What I do know is the scripture is really clear that we are a chosen people that God saw fit to love us and grace us through his son. This is important. Because if, if that is true, 
if Jesus really paid it all, if the work Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection means that we are saved and set free and made whole, if that's true, then that changes the rest of our lives. Because then peace too comes into play of our identity. It says we are a people for his possession. Your Bible might say a people set apart or a people belonging to God. Royal nation, holy priesthood, people set apart. Keller used this phrase that really unlocked this for me. He said, if you take it all apart and you put it all back together, you could really rewrite it as a people purchased and treasured. Your people purchased and treasured. That the price, the bounty on our heads because of our falling short was paid by God through Jesus. He paid. So when we sing Jesus paid it all, we're singing, Jesus, you paid my debt. You righted my wrongs. You undid what I had done. So that is true, but not just are we then indentured servants to someone who freed us and paid our debt, but we're treasured. If we're not careful, the chosen part gets us down sometimes. I'm worthless, but he saved me anyway. We got a song. Maybe you heard Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, he saved a wretch like me. And we stay in wretch mode. We're like, oh, I'm just terrible. I'm so depraved and I can't make this right. But, you know, thank God that he saw fit to save me, this moron. And what this is saying is, you got a new identity, bro. You're not a moron. You're not a wretch. You may have been, but you're not. You've been switched. And you're not only chosen, but you're chosen and treasured. You're a people for his possession. You ever take little kids on vacation and they pick the weirdest things to cling to? You go to the beach and they pick some terrible shell necklace that's the gaudiest thing you've ever seen in your life and it's $3, but they wear it for weeks like it's the greatest treasure in the world. Purchased, treasured. God looks at us not like some cheap necklace in a surf shop. He looks at us as his children and he says, I'm purchasing and treasuring. You're with me now. So in that, we have no superiority over anyone else because we were chosen by grace. So we don't get to claim superiority. We don't get to stand up higher than others. We don't get to look down on people who don't get what we get or believe what we believe. Because we didn't earn it. So you don't have superiority in that identity. The other thing you don't have is inferiority. You can't also say, oh, you know, just woe is me, wretch like me. Because, no, you're treasured. You're chosen and treasured. And so we move out in confidence. Because priestly service is not based on our goodness, but on Christ's grace not based on my goodness. I'm not named a priest to go out and serve this community. You're not named a priest, a minister, a missionary to go and serve the community to, to, to preach grace to people through your lives. You're not done and given that because you earned it. You're given that because God so loved you that he bestowed on you this new identity. He says, now you get to do this. So we serve. So we advance on schools and ministries. We advance on the darkness and the trouble. We advance on neighborhoods and offices, not because we're better but because we represent what's better. What is whole and what is true and what is right, what will give life and healing and transformation. And so in this room, the best part about our identity is our identity brings us all together no matter where we come from, no matter what other things we're involved in, no matter what we did in our past. You've heard the phrase that everyone's equal at the foot of the cross. At the foot of the cross, we're all equal. We're all made whole. We're all made right. And before God on the cross, we see Jesus, and he's paid it all. And you and I become equal. And all of our secondary identities, all the things we previously identified with can go by the wayside. All the things that we held on to a little bit too tight get to go away. 
In this room, we are liberal and conservative. We are married and divorced and single. We are black and brown and white. We are falling short. We are wholly saved. We are God's people. And so wherever you are and whatever other identifiers you hold, they all fall second to the one that says, no, you're a chosen people with a mission to take the city by force. And not force of power, but force of grace. You are his representation. You are his grace on display. You are his hope in the darkness. You are the healing in the sorrow. This is what you are called to be. You were chosen. You are treasured. And then your job is to go and make that known. And the beauty is we have security. Not only in ourselves, we have security to offer in a fearful world. We've been given the ultimate security. You're chosen. You're treasured. You're secure. That eternity is now yours, and so you don't have to worry about tomorrow. Community is radical in this way. And Covenant, our, our vehicle of choice to try to make this happen, and they're all imperfect vehicles. Our vehicle is community groups. We gather, we share, we bless. We gather, we share, we bless. We gather, we share, we bless. And it sounds mundane. And some people are in a group right now, and they're going, that kind of feels mundane when you do it. And that's okay. When it gets religious, it gets boring. When we lose the, the missional fire in our bones, and we allow it to be a religious checkbox, it starts to feel pretty mundane. But we believe that life-transforming community creates community-transforming lives. That if we truly engage in life-transforming community, we will be living community-transforming lives. And that is when the city of God begins to form in the city of Bowling Green. So we gather, which means what? Which means we rally together and remind each other of our identity and our security in Jesus. And when we break bread together, when we go bowling together, when we gather together, we remind each other. We look in a mirror and see our identity reflected back at us. And then we share, we serve one another. We pray together, we become one together, we become built in. Like Peter said, Christian upon Christian, believer upon believer, and we begin to be built in together, brick on brick. And that time we spend together, that time we spend sharing together and praying together, that, that, that becomes the mortar that sticks us. And we bless. We attack the darkness around us. Every group strategically zeroes in on an area and then overwhelms it with blessing. And this is when it gets crazy. Because when we do it, we don't do it to gain power. We do it to offer invitation to all who might be blessed into this colony of life in the country of death. We serve not to gain power, but to offer invitation to this colony of life in the country of death. Man, life is hard. And everybody in here is fighting a battle. And some of them are obvious and on the outside, and some of them are deep and they're hidden and nobody knows it but you. But everyone here is fighting a battle, and our job as believers is to go and rally around and fight together and point to the only thing that's actually going to solve the problem, the only one that can actually heal. Every time we get together, we're, we're building a new BG. That's radical, eternal stuff. This is why we desire every person in community. Some people are like, well, I have community. I don't have to be in a community group. And we go, awesome, do it. Be missional about it. It's why we need more people to step up and to lead community groups. You go, you know what? I could host one of those. 
We could do that in my neighborhood. There isn't one close to me. I had someone come up to me last week and say, you were talking about community groups, and there isn't one within like five or ten miles of me. And I figured there should be, so I'll host one. And I said, awesome. And she said, well, I actually can't host it because, you know, my house is uh, not ready for that yet, but I'm going to find somebody. We're going to host it somewhere. Awesome. And as we look at a map, if you put a map of the city up on the screen, I've been having these dreams lately. It's a weird thing. It's weird. I don't dream in vision. I don't dream in uh, spiritual things. I dream about eating a hot dog in Central Park or something. <laughs> or as my wife would tell you, weirder things than that. We got attacked by rats the other night. It was weird. I was all over the bed. She's like, you need to go back to sleep. I've been dreaming about the map of this region and little pin dots in that map. Each one represented by community group. Each one a, a flaming arrow into the darkness. Each one that says, hey, if there's anybody within three miles of here, we got a place for you. If there's darkness within two miles of here, we got a place for you. And as I started thinking about it, I, I kind of like, I've been looking, I got all these files on my computer where I've been circling things on a map now and trying to figure out what this means. As you zoom out from Bowling Green, we have every quadrant of the city has a group in it. And then you go out a little bit, and other, other quadrants are having these groups too. And someone from Waterville says, I want to have a group. And someone from Weston's going to say, I'm going to have a group. And eventually what we're going to have is these little pockets of countercultural, radical life happening all over this region. That's wild. Because we were taught that we were supposed to be excited to renovate the foyer and kind of live in this huddle, and now we feel safe, and it's a little bit nicer here. And the reality is it's a little bit nicer here so that we can come together for this one hour a week and challenge each other and inspire each other and grow with each other so that we can go back out there to all of our distant map dots and make a difference. And that's hard. It's hard because group is not easy and because in America group is... Uh, Intentionally, most churches scheduled uh, to be small and insular, self-focused. That's what groups always been. That's what my groups have always been. That previous church, you're supposed to have eight to twelve. No more than that. If you get over twelve, you have to split so everybody can remain intimate and small, and you can all focus on your study together. There's nothing wrong with that. But the scripture says we're a royal priesthood. We're a people designed to go and serve. We're a people designed to not have it all figured out, to be walking around with wires hanging out and, and ductwork exposed and dust on the ground and to figure it out as we go. And so what we know is as we walk through community together, as we do groups together, and it's not always easy. And we run into these hurdles like people go, we're just not going deep. And I go, well, group is not a depth accelerant. That's not the point. You will not have 10 best friends the first day you walk into your new community group. But you might have one person that a couple years from now you can't imagine living without but it's a slow brick by brick building of relationship. Group is not a miracle factory. We will not solve the world's problems next week. Especially not doing it one hour every other week. There's not a lot gets done. But in bursts, you sense it. In bursts, you start to feel it. In bursts, you feel the progress and you go, wait a minute, this is it. This is that city of God. It's not a personal growth steroid. Most groups, some have it, but most groups tell me we don't have time to do a big, deep Bible study together and, and get in the Word and dig in deep together and ask big questions together. We just don't have time to do that in our group because there's kids running around or we don't meet that often or the timing doesn't always work. And they go, well, you know, that's hard. 
And I said, yeah, that is hard. The point of a covenant community group is not that you would know the Bible inside out. I hope you know the Bible inside out. But the, the point of the community group is not that you would know the Bible inside out, but that you would begin to live out what's inside the Bible. That's the point. Know your Bible. We're going to rally in groups so we can live it. Community group is an invitation to participate in building the city of God and the city of Bowling Green. When you get a glimpse of this, you know it. When the group tells me about the baby shower they have for the family whose real family is far away. And they become family for the night. And they bless their socks off. And they come tell me and they say, that was cool. I think that's what this is about. And I go, it is. When you're huddled praying over someone in your group who's been through tragedy. That's what it's about. But you've got to live life. To get there, you have to live months and sometimes years before you have those little pinprick moments where you go, oh, that's it. And all during that time, you're out doing life together. You're out serving together. You're taking meals. You're taking service hours. You're loving people who are desperate for it. Growing together the whole way. When you get a letter from the principal of the elementary school who says, no one's ever done this for us. And yet some weird church group showed up with all this food and coffee and way more sugar than we needed. And they laid it all out in the break room on the last day of school. So all of our teachers got this note that says, you're loved and appreciated and we love the way you serve our kids. And she goes, we're kind of blown away. We don't know what to do with that. And the response that the group gives her is, can we do it again next year? That's mission being lived out. And you hear that your neighbor who was thinking about divorce comes in and says, you know what, because of what your group said to me and because of how we pray together, because you guys have been living life, I think we can make it. We're going to try. That's life transforming grace and love on display. When you see the family come to Christ, you know that city of God is on the horizon. So our job as a people is to throw open the gates to this city, to live in our true identity as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart, chosen and treasured. And to sit there and to begin to go out and proclaim the goodness and the grace of the one who took us from darkness and brought us into the marvelous light of mercy. That's who we are. It's who we're called to be and it's who we are pointed towards. And my prayer is that if you are in here you would know it's not by accident. And if community sounds like an awkward thing or something you don't have time for, guess what? You're right on both accounts. And it is the greatest blessing to the life of a believer to get shoulder to shoulder with other believers and chase a mission bigger than ourselves. And so today you will be invited to that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have uh, ridiculously graced us Father, we know that your scripture teaches that you had perfect community in heaven with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Didn't need us. Weren't lonely. Weren't incomplete. And yet you chose to rescue. You chose to redeem. You chose to regenerate us and to send us back out as your representatives. Father, thank you for calling us your people. Thank you for sending us out on a mission that really matters. Thank you for injecting meaning into our lives, for interrupting the daily grind and the, the rot of the rut that we live in and reminding us that there's something bigger out there for us. 
Father, for the troubled souls in this room, for those whose hearts are aching or whose problems are bigger than we can imagine. Our prayer is that uh, your whisper of it is well would come over them. Father, your touch would be real. We would know that when you paid it all, you cover even our daily trials. So, Father, as you're faithful to us, I pray that we would be faithful to this community, that we would be faithful to our calling, and that we would step out of our comfort, we would step out of our everyday routine, and we would find a way to begin building the city of God right here in this region. That no neighborhood would go untouched, that no street would go unnoticed, that no family hurting, no child crying out would be too far from our reach. Father, give us the vision to see it. Give us the will to do it. Give us the courage to walk into dark and dangerous places. Thank you for loving us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.